Good afternoon. Um, again, my name is uh, Stephen McGinnis, and uh, in Greece, uh, it's Stephanos Maginos. So for those of you who thought, why is a Scottish or an Irish guy going to Greece, uh, it's actually a Greek last name. My father is Dionysius Maginos, and my grandfather is also Dionysius Maginos. Uh, in fact, uh, just last week, my, my father got his dual citizenship, um, so he is uh, also a Greek citizen now, which is going to be really helpful for us when we go over there in terms of, of at least getting a visa, but maybe even allowing me to get citizenship as well, um, which the other nice thing about that is uh, it would kind of give me a golden ticket around Europe because I would never have any problem getting into any countries, leaving any countries. Um, it, it could be really interesting to see how that plays out, but my uh, father's actually a land owner over on uh, one of the islands. Um, that's an interesting story. Somewhere along 1916, 1917, my grandfather um, left the island that he grew up on, Kefalonia, in the Ionian group right next to Corfu. He got on a merchant ship. Life was really, really hard for him, uh, so he got on this merchant ship, and he came over to the United States, and when he was in a port in New Jersey, he decided that he was going to stay in America. Something I just found out, I don't know, a year or so ago, was that that ship sank at sea on the way back to Greece, and so it's crazy to think that, uh, you know, I may not even be here if he hadn't have stayed in America. He only went back once, um, primarily because he, he loved America so much and he didn't see any reason to go back to the poverty that he experienced growing up on a occupied island by both the Germans and the Italians through different wars. Um, it's a pretty, pretty amazing story. Because of that, he was bitter towards God he was bitter towards the Greek Orthodox Church because, uh, as he saw it, they didn't help very much um, on the island with poverty and uh, with the community. And so my father really didn't grow up with the church at all, and it was a sweet Baptist lady who shared her faith while he was working at a bank. Uh, through that, that's how he came to know the Lord. And um, because of that, my brother and my sister and myself all know Jesus Christ. So why Greece? And not only why Greece, but why me? Well, there's really two answers to that question. I want to talk about that, and then I want to open up the Word of God to, uh, to really just expound from the Scripture. There's a denomination called the Greek Evangelical Church uh, in Greece. There are um, maybe about 20 or so churches in, in the whole country, there are only about, I don't know, eight 9,000 evangelicals out of about 10 million people. For the Balkan Peninsula, it's interestingly enough, one of the smallest percentages of evangelicals um, in that whole area. So this denomination, seeing a great need, because the University of Athens, about 80,000 undergraduate and graduate students... And serves as really the influential school, not just for Greece, but for all of the Balkan Peninsula and really the eastern Mediterranean region. Um, 
seeing a need there and seeing that there was really only a couple of, for that many people, only a couple of ministries uh, that really weren't united to the church at all. And so they pursued Reformed University Fellowship and Mission to the World, which is uh, our denominational missions agency. They pursued them and said, we really need help in reaching these university students. Not just Greek university students, but Balkan Peninsula university students. I've met Brazilian university students that are studying there from all over the world. We need to reach these students. There is a great need because as you know, things have gotten very tough there. Hope has been lost. A lot of these university students are not looking at jobs when they graduate. They're looking at unemployment. There's a lot of despair among them. And so, RUF says, yes, we would love to have a ministry in Europe. First one. We don't have any overseas. Greece pursued them, so that's how that happened. And they said, well, we've got to find the right person. <clears throat> The RUF minister here in Macon, Georgia, who is a friend of mine, was at training one day, and when they announced that they're going to plant this ministry in Greece, they said, hey, you need to talk to Stephen McGinnis. He's got some Greek heritage, and he just went through RUF assessment. And so really through a lot of providential things, um, RUF approached me about, about doing this work in Greece. And I met with a pastor, I met with RUF, I met with MTW, and we all decided that this was a good idea to pursue. And so, why Greece? Well, in some ways, Greece desperately, the church there, the evangelical church there, desperately needed um, some help in reaching university students. And why me? Well, because God pursued me to do this. And interestingly enough, I have really come to fall in love with the people there. I have been able to see the need that is present, not just with university students, but um, even with some of the disparaged people groups there, like the Albanians, who uh, are having a really tough time but have come in droves. And my wife also, because of her nursing background here, she worked at the medical center and some other things, she is going to get involved with a ministry that reaches out to um, uh, prostitutes. It's got one of the, it's legal there in Athens, but a very rough and dirty business. And um, the slave, sex slave trade there is one of the largest in Europe, period. It serves as a gateway uh, for prostitution throughout, throughout all of Europe. So my wife is looking forward to helping out with that. So what am I gonna be doing? I want to talk about that real quick. Our sort of motto at RUF is reach and equip. That's what we're called to do. We're called to reach university students in any way that we can, whether it's uh, meeting them on the university, whether it's meeting them in, um, you know, out in the restaurants or the coffee shops or the streets, uh, whether it's through sports. We try every avenue that we can to reach them, to bring them in, and to engage them with primarily three areas. And those areas are one-on-ones. Let's meet. Let's get together. Let's talk. It's small groups, bringing them together and starting to look at the scriptures. And then it's large group. When you can start bringing these separate one-on-ones and small groups together to bring them to a common place and to open up the word of God to them. Because it is the word of God that changes people. 
not philosophy, um, not witty sayings. It's the power of the word of God. And my intention is to bring that to bear upon them in any way that I can. And to help develop really a college ministry program for this denomination. So that's my task. That's what I'm called to do. And uh, that's what we are preparing for when we go over there. If you have your Bibles, I want to take a look uh, at just really a couple passages, and then we're going to talk about the underlying problem that is present in the passages, but also with Greece. So please turn to uh, Matthew 18 if you can. If not, you can just follow along when I read. And then we're also going to look at Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. Matthew 18, 21 through uh, 35. This is the word of God. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And so out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As many of you know, Greece has been all over the news, really for the last couple of years. And and, and for good reason, because there's so much riding on what happens there for the EU. If I had the time, I, I I love economics and I would love to talk about all the intricacies and the technical issues that have put them in the place uh, that they are. For example, just horrible tax evasion. Um, that's one of the major, major problems. Uh, when, 
I don't know, it's getting close to like 60% work uh, for the Greek government. Um, that's, that's very difficult. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have to look far, though, ourselves to realize that we have somewhat similar problems. In fact, when uh, I checked a, a news agency that I, I check occasionally at 2 a.m. this morning, the headline was, Rioting breaks out around the globe amid economic anxiety. You know, we have serious issues going on here. The downgrading that just happened, um, the, the fight that happened in Congress over what to do with the debt ceiling. At the risk of being oversimplistic, which I realize it is, when you boil it down to the essential problem, you're left with debt. Debt. And nobody, nobody likes debt. In fact, uh, the borrower and the lender, they look at the debt that stands between them and they say, something has to be done about this. And predictably, there's always um, disagreements on what to do with the debt. In Greece and throughout the EU and now even here in the U.S., those disagreements have become perilous, interesting, um, contentious at times. No one knows exactly what's going to happen, uh, particularly in Greece and Spain and Italy that are also starting to have problems. Will Greece default? Will they recover without more bailout if they were to default? How will the EU respond to a default? What would it do to the currency? How would a default over there affect the United States of America since we insure a lot of the creditors that have bailed them out? The questions go on and on. But why is debt such a big deal? I think it's a big deal because it stands as an enormous monument that there's a problem, that there's a liability, that there's an obligation between parties, between two parties usually. For example, um, let's say I were to walk up to your car with a sledgehammer in my hand. I took that sledgehammer and I pounded the hood of your car as, as, hard as, I, as hard as I could, leaving this massive dent. I just created a debt between me and you. I owe you whatever it takes to restore your car to the condition that it was in. But as we both look at this debt that's now been created, neither of us like it. You look at the debt, and you're mad because I owe you. And if I can't pay you, you're going to have to pay out of your pocket to fix it. I look at the debt, and I realize that I have to give up something to restore you to whole. It's only then that the debt is taken care of, but neither of us like it. And I realize that if I work for a month, every single dollar that I bring in, I can't spend on myself. I have to give it to you. Oh, that makes me so mad. The other party's mad. Or consider another example. You get into a discussion with a family member or a spouse, and things get a little heated. And you say some very harsh things in the moment. What have you just done? You've created a debt between you and that other person. If it's your wife, which would be my example, and this has happened a few times, she looks at the debt and is angry because she's owed some form of reconciliation. And I look at that, and I'm angry because I owe her something, and I don't like to owe people anything. In the end... Money doesn't fix that kind of debt. It's not until 
you admit that you're wrong and that you seek forgiveness, that your relationship is made right with that person. Well, the Apostle Paul makes it clear time and time again that this is the same problem that we have with God. Whether we like it or not, our sin has created a debt between God and man. And God and us look at that debt and we say, something's wrong. Something's broken. Something has to be fixed. God looks at it and he says, I am owed their righteousness and their praise. I created them. Yet, I don't have that. And we look at it and say, gosh, I can't pay it. Or, we are angry that we owe God anything. And you know, it's as complex and as serious as all of these current debt issues are around the world, there's a more serious debt issue at stake. And like I said, that's the debt that stands between us and God. But as I just read in Colossians, Paul makes it abundantly clear. Listen to what he says. That you, who were dead in your trespasses, in other words, you couldn't pay, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and listen, listen to this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How? This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. You see, debt does not just mysteriously disappear. I know sometimes that that's the hope of our leaders. But it doesn't do that. It, it remains as, again, a glaring monument that something needs to be taken care of, that something needs to be fixed. And because we cannot pay our debt to God in and of ourselves... You guys know this. God had to pay it himself. We were incapable of doing so. And how did he pay it? Well, Paul says he paid it through his son, Jesus Christ, who nailed it to the cross. Essentially, Paul is saying that if you are in Christ Jesus, your debt that is owed to God is taken care of. It is canceled. When he looks at you, he doesn't say you owe me your righteousness. He doesn't say you owe me your praise. That is taken care of in Christ. Your righteousness is Christ's righteousness. We are able to praise him in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's really an amazing transaction that happened at the cross through Jesus Christ. A lot of us have opinions of how to fix the debt problems across the world. Some of them are good, some of them maybe not. But in the end, this debt issue that Paul talks about, it's the good news for Greece. It's the good news for the Balkan Peninsula. It's the good news for Europe, for the rest of the world, for the United States. It's the solution to a broken in a sinful world. And so why did I read the Matthew 18 passage? Well, really, I just want to close with a, a quick note of a application. 
When you realize how profound the sacrifice was that Jesus made on the cross, how can you not extend that to the people in your life? It's amazing to me how often we fail to forgive the people in our own lives who sin against us, who wrong us. Here we are, forgiven in Christ at an ultimate price, a price that you couldn't pay. And yet we fail to forgive often those around us. And so I read the Matthew parable at the beginning to show that Jesus points out a very clear inconsistency between really how much we've been forgiven and how unwilling we are sometimes to forgive others. And so I ask myself this question, but also you, is there someone in your life right now that has wronged you, that has created a debt? Or is it somebody that you've wronged? A spouse, a business partner, a friend, an associate, and yet you haven't forgiven them? I beg you and implore you through the word of God, through Matthew 18, through Jesus' words, and through the reality that Paul presents in Colossians 2 of the record of debt that Christ canceled for you, that he took care of for you, I implore you to realize that, to remember what has been forgiven you and to seek the forgiveness with those in your life. And if that wrong is between you and God, well, as we've said, it can only be fixed in one way. And that is, in and through Christ, by nailing it to the cross, that's how the debt's taken care of. This is the most serious debt problem we're dealing with right now as humanity. And so I beg you to realize just how profound, again, the sacrifice was. The price that was paid on our behalf in and through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as not only broken people, but even as sinful people. There are things in all of our lives right now that we may not necessarily be proud of, things that we're struggling with, people that we've wronged, people that have wronged us and we're harboring issues against them. I pray that your word, which we have read today, I pray that it would sink in deep and would change our hearts so that we would seek out forgiveness. Father, more than anything, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who, being God himself, came and as a representative for us, paid our debt on the cross that was owed to you. Oh, may we praise him. Father, may Christ be made more and more present in our life. We thank you for your word and your word made flesh and in him. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.